Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 43. It's titled, What Drives Home Prices? The inspiration for today's episode was a couple things. An email I got from Mark, who lives in Australia and is saving to buy a a home. And in Australia, unlike in the United States, many lenders require more private mortgage insurance. And in Australia, it's called lender's mortgage insurance. But there, it's not actually lumped into the the cost of the house and then as part of the mortgage. In other words, you can't borrow the amount or the premium you pay for mortgage insurance. There, you actually have to save that money separately. And it's it's basically an expense of purchasing a home that can be two to to three percent, five to ten thousand dollars, or Australian dollars in this case. And so he he's in a situation where he's saving trying to decide, all right, they have about 10% saved for a down payment. Should they continue saving to where they have 20% and can avoid the lender's mortgage insurance, or should they go ahead and buy the home? And, And as a backdrop to this, Australia is in the midst of a housing boom. Australian home prices have doubled since the year 2000. And Although they, they fell off a little bit with, with the overall drop in housing prices in the U.S. And, and, and in Europe, they actually rebounded. There there were some incentives put in place by the government to encourage, I believe, first-time homebuyers. And so houses have continued to appreciate to where Australia has one of the most expensive housing markets in the world in terms of it, its appreciation and relative to a number of metrics that I'm going to give later in, in this show. And that, that pre- presents a conundrum to, to, to Mark. What do you do when housing prices continue to climb? They climbed year over year. Year over year, they climbed 9% in Australia. So continue to accelerate. And it seems like there is no end in sight. And so is it better to go ahead and take the plunge before the houses get more expensive? So that's something we'll address today. The, the other real impetus for today's show is I've been staying in Orange County for the past three weeks with my family. We are staying in a timeshare overlooking on the Newport Coast. We're overlooking the ocean. And back in episode 24, I, I gave a sort of gave the economics of timeshares and, and suggested why it's, it's not necessarily the best idea today if you're thinking about buying one. Although after to being here three weeks and just being amazed at value values of homes, what homes cost. The, I'm, we're on a bluff overlooking the ocean, 
We're on about in about a thousand square foot, foot condo. If just just across the way, there's this area called Pelican Hill, which is just across the road. Same view of the ocean. Houses selling for seven million dollars, eighteen million dollars, ten million dollars. You you drop down and get closer to the coast in a, a town called Corona del Mar. There you see houses, same thing, priced at over $1,000 a square foot, which is 10 times what houses cost in, in Idaho. And, and so we want to look at, well, what is it that influences housing prices? And, and how can you tell if we're, you're in, we're in a housing bubble or not? And what should houses appreciate over time, what, what should be our baseline expectation for housing prices, annual increase, and what is it that drives housing prices to, to go above that baseline trend or to fall below that trend? So that's what we want to cover today. Just to, as a, a backdrop, the IMF does a global housing price index. And over the past year, houses across the world have gained 1.3%. But that really masks what's going on because there's countries where houses are, as I mentioned, Australia uh, are up over 9%. The, the fastest increase in housing prices over the past year has been in Estonia, where they gained over 15% in the past year. The worst housing market in the world over the past year has been Ukraine, which you can expect with some of the conflict going on. Their housing prices have fallen about 30% over the past year. But what, what should be the, an expectation for housing prices? What, you buy a house, let's say it's your first time home. I, I remember our first home, we paid $70,000. This was back in 1993. We, it was a house that had had one owner. He, this was in Dayton, Ohio. And he lived there for 40 years. And I think he smoked every single day of those 40 years till he died because on the walls in the house was literally, they were yellow with nicotine. They were plaster walls, which was really cool, really nice pattern. But I spent the entire summer just painting over and over those walls with kills because the nicotine would, would come through. So you always remember your first house fondly. Now, that was one of 12 houses we've owned in our lifetime. So I, I've had experience buying houses. We haven't act, didn't actually live in all those houses. We only lived in nine of them. The, the house that we owned the longest was we, we built a house back in 2005, and we lived there eight years, turned around and sold that house and lost $100,000 on it. And I'll talk about that in a few minutes. We've owned, in the shortest period that we've owned a house, we once owned a house, and this was just a couple years ago, for two weeks. We bought it, we were moving in and discovered mold in the basement that because we pulled off some shelves and felt like the disclosures just weren't adequate. The, the the homeowners were gracious. They we did not have a legal case against them, given the rules in Idaho. 
But they agreed to buy back the house. They, they were honest and, and said, if we don't want it, we'll buy it back. So they bought it back. So we owned that house for two weeks. But let's go back to this baseline assumption. Here is a quote from Robert Schiller. Robert Schiller is a Nobel laureate. He is an expert on housing and house home prices. Back in 2013, he did a series of three articles, which I'll link to in the show notes, or if you're a member of the Insider's Guide, you'll get that in your email. And so he did three articles on housing, and it was the series is called The Housing Haze. And, and just this whole concept of how do you know what home prices uh, are going to do over the next year? So what drives home prices? Here's his quote. Real home prices should decline with time, except to the extent that households shell out some money and plow back some of their incomes into maintenance improvements becomes because homes wear out and go out of style. There's this concept that when you, you can when you buy a home, you can buy a new one, as we did when we built a house, you know, something brand new. Or you could buy a used one. And we don't typically think of used homes because that gives somewhat of a negative connotation. But what, what Schiller is inferring here is that houses, like cars, depreciate. They go, value, go down in value over time because they, they get old. They fall apart, and just like a car. And, and we, don't really ever, we don't really think about that. If you look at the 100 years, and this again, this is from Schiller, the 100 years ended 1990 before the boom started in the U.S. Housing, home prices increased on average 0.2% per year. So real appreciation. So when we talk about real, we're talking about after adjusting for inflation. So after adjusting for inflation, the real price of homes should actually go down over time. They do get old. And- they they go out of style. Back in in the 30s, houses tended to be smaller and have very small rooms. And then we've gone through. You can usually tell sort of the vintage of a house. Back in the 90s, at least in Idaho, everyone was building cabinet kitchen cabinets out of oak, and now you see oak cabinets, and and they seem outdated. They go out of style. These these mega mansions that were so common. Back in the first decade of, of the 2000s, there was an article in the, in the Atlantic Month, Monthly a couple years ago that talked about will suburbs become the new slums because no one wants to live in these far-flung mega mansions. And so houses can go out of style. And that, that honestly should be our baseline assumption that one should never buy a house with the anticipation that after adjusting for inflation, that it will increase in value, that it will have real appreciation. Stocks, you can assume that after inflation, they will show a real rate of return because the companies are reinvesting profits. They're coming up with new initiatives. Houses fall apart and they go out of style. And and that should be the, the baseline assumption. Now, another reason why there's a downward trend in housing prices after adjusting for inflation is productivity. Productivity is the measure of 
how much output is created per unit of input. And by input, we're talking labor. So how much labor does it take to build a house? And, and how much capital does it take in terms of the, the material and, and the supply cost? And over time, builders get more efficient at building houses. There was a study that Schiller referred to produced by Leo Grebler and David Blank. This was way back in 1956. And this was sort of the definitive study on home prices and what drove home prices. And they felt that over time, what drove home prices was the construction cost and this productivity aspect. And an example of productivity improvements, houses used to be built by hand with and, and hand saws and, or well, I guess they used to use chisels. But in 1889, the first electric drill was invented, and you could that, that certainly sped things up. And then in 1895, a portable electric drill. 1970, a, a refinement of the electric drill. Phillips had screwdriver in 1935, the first cordless electric drill in 1961. Then you have lithium-ion batteries. You have nail guns. And the, the bottom line is, Building a home is much more efficient. I've seen that just just since the housing bust in the United States, builders seem to be much more efficient at building houses than they were back in 2005 when we built our house. Partly, I think it, it was the environment, but construction costs, the actual material costs have gone down. And I think they built them faster than they did because they're, everyone wanted to build a house. They could take their time. They could charge a premium. So productivity does put downward pressure on house prices over time. And it's another reason why that increasing productivity, they're, essentially you shouldn't go in expecting your house to appreciate greater than – well, after adjusting for inflation, you shouldn't expect it to appreciate at all. In fact, you lose money. You have to actually continue to maintain and and put money into the house in terms of upkeep, in terms of maintenance, perhaps, ultimately, to to remodel. Now, what what examples do we have to show that this is actually true, that house prices do not appreciate after adjusting for inflation and maintenance cost. Well, there's a study, it's pretty fascinating data provided by The Economist magazine. And what they do is they show the real price of houses in in different countries around the world and shows what was their real appreciation. And and again, I'll link to this in the show notes. And And I just... I don't know how far the data go back, but I started sort of 1990. So 1990 is when the housing boom started in the U.S. And if you look at what houses have done on a real basis, they increased by 50% to their peak in 2005, 2006, and then they fell. And so since 1990, U.S. homes have not showed any real appreciation. After inflation, they haven't. They haven't. Germany, house, houses, homes never really got into 
that bubble. And so they are essentially priced after adjusting for inflation the same as they were in 1990. Japan, which has suffered deflation, has actually seen their home prices on a real basis fall by 50%. So they've definitely seen a price decline. But then you look at Australia and Canada, where, as I mentioned, Australian home prices have more than doubled. And Canadian home prices are also very elevated. And what's unique about those countries, unlike the U.S., because there's this idea that what you know, one thing that contributed to the home bubble in the U.S. is the fact that interest rates are tax deductible. I believe in Canada and Australia, mortgage interest is not tax deductible. And again, they're requiring higher down payments, 10 to 20 percent. Yet you still see houses having appreciated significantly greater than inflation. But you saw the same thing in the Netherlands where home prices increased 160 percent but have since fallen 40% but remain elevated. But if you bought at the top of the market in the Netherlands, you're underwater 40%. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N. A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. So what is it that drives the 
the baseline, again, the baseline assumption, we should assume that house prices don't appreciate relative on a real basis. And we don't, you don't see that because the holding, you know, compared to a car, the holding life for a house is much longer. So you, it's hard to see the, these long-term trends. And there's this whole concept called money illusion where you look at, we tend to look at things at, in nominal values. We don't look at it after adjusting for inflation. And so if your house goes up in value, well, most of it can be to inflation. But there are exceptions. And let's focus on Australia particularly, which is in definitely in a housing boom. There are some locations where, you know, where there's a, a great deal uh, of density in terms of individuals, households, it tends to be dense and highly desirable. Southern California, where home prices are selling along the coast for more than $1,000 a square foot. There the value of the house is the land. There is only so much land with majestic views of the ocean and great weather. And so that land contributes a large percent to, to the value of the house. Now, land can be very, very volatile. And let me give you an example of that. Morgan Davis of the University of Wisconsin and Jonathan Heathcote from the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis they have done studies showing, all right, what percent of a home's price is land? And it, it isn't very high. On average, it's been about 30%. So 30% of a home's value is the underlying land. 70% is, is the house itself. Now, that it's currently, it's around 27%, but it got as high as 48% at the peak of the housing bubble in the U.S. in 2006. So you, you do have a situation where land can vary, and because land is volatile, that can get a period where house prices are above that above the long-term trend. Now, housing is very, very local, and so and, and I'm not that familiar with the situation in Australia. So they're, they're perhaps there are areas highly desirable, like in Melbourne, Sydney, where most of the value is in the land. But in most places, land is only worth – is about a third of the home's cost. Most of the cost is in the materials in the house itself, which is getting old, falling apart, needs to be maintained, and potentially could go out of style. But what are, what are other factors that contribute to houses going – rising above the trend? And, and I've looked at studies by economists, and, and we've tried to – and look at what they think. Now, there's not general agreement, but here are some of the things. And there was a particular interesting study by Linda Rousseauva and Paul Van de Nord. They're with the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And they did a house called Predicting Peaks and Troughs in Housing Prices. And they looked across the world and they're trying to look at, you know, what is it that drives home prices to appreciate for long periods of time above that trend to where they're growing much faster than inflation. They're showing real appreciation. And house prices show a momentum aspect to it. They're just like any other asset class where there is a level of ir irrationality involved. I, I recall back in 2003, 2004, meeting with 
investors that were were buying up property in San Diego, doing huge condo deals. And I remember one gentleman was just convinced this was just not, this was going to go on forever. And that's the problem with with bubbles. There's this concept that it will continue indefinitely. And there really is that belief when it comes to housing because the trends can be so long. If you're living in Australia and home prices have generally increased in an upward trend above inflation where you get real appreciation since 1990, it's hard to step back and say, you know, maybe this isn't sustainable. So what are the things that drive home prices so they grow faster than inflation? Well, this particular study showed that interest rates. So the lower the interest rates, that tends to be indicative indicative that above trend growth potentially leading to a peak. A pickup inflation, inflation when it's higher doesn't necessarily lead to peaks in home prices, but inflation, if it starts to pick up, actually can be indicative of a trough. So you you have a a boom and then you have a bust, you have a peak in a trough, and one indication of a market bottom is when inflation starts to pick up again, is what they found in their study. The investment in housing, how much construction activity and construction investment. If, if there's a great deal of, uh, of supply and investment coming on, that can actually propel the momentum of housing higher for a time until at some point the, the supply – Gets too much because ultimately what we're talking about here is supply and demand is what drives home prices. So when we're talking about above trend growth, it is because demand it has is crease dramatically, and that is driven to some extent by low interest rates. It's driven by low or or eased lending standards, so it's easier to get a mortgage loan. That certainly helps. If unemployment rate is low and so incomes are high, that can drive home prices over time above trend growth. It can continue for a long time. And these are some things that they found in, in the study. And just like with momentum with, with stocks and asset classes, you find with home prices that as the rate of appreciation increases, there, there's, there's definitely a momentum aspect to it. So where they go higher and higher and higher – at a faster and faster rate until you hit a peak. And it's very, very difficult to figure out where those peaks are. But one way to look at it would be as interest rates start to go up, as unemployment starts to rise, as income starts to to peak, and perhaps the increase in income, those things can indicate a peak is is almost there. Now, what can we look at to say is a housing market in a bubble? Well, there's there's some data, and again, you can go back to these charts on the Economist that I'll reference that I've refer- referenced that, that actually show that. But the two fundamental measures to figure out: all right, are house prices cheap, or are they expensive relative to the long term trend? Is price to income. What are home, the median home price relative to median household income? And on average in the United States, since 1982, the existing median home prices have sold for three times median household income. At the top of the market, at the peak, 
houses sold for 3.9 times the median, and at the trough, 2.7. So it doesn't, it didn't vary dramatically, but that that can be significant. So 3.9 times median income, the median home price. And so when you look at, all right, which countries are most expensive on a price-to-income basis right now around the world? Again, this is IMF data. Austria, Germany, Estonia, and Switzerland, most ex- expensive on a price-to-income basis. The cheapest homes in the world right now on price-to-income are Hungary, Spain, Greece, Slovenia, and the Netherlands. Now, Australia isn't there, but it is very much elevated. If you look at the data of price-to-income for home prices in Australia, it is well, well above average, although not necessarily the most expensive in the world. Another measure then, so you need to, you need to look at this price-to-income. Where are we in terms of the long-term cycle? The other is price-to-rent. When you are buying a home, you have a choice to live, buy a house or you have a choice to rent. And so if the cost of servicing a mortgage or the price of houses gets prohibitive relative to rent, that can be indicative that houses are certainly overpriced and potentially will fall. On a price-to-rent basis, the most expensive homes in the world right now are Turkey, Germany, Austria, and Canada. And the cheapest on a price-to-rent basis is Netherlands, Spain, Greece, and Ireland. So should you, should you buy a house when it's, when it's overpriced? I mean, what, what is the likelihood uh, of losing money? Well, just like with any asset class, when you purchase something, when it's overvalued, there is a risk of loss. Now, perhaps that can continue for that, that gain for an extended period of time. And it is very hyper-local. You can buy a very well-priced house in an expensive market, particularly if you're willing to do – if it's a fixer-upper and there's things you, you want to – that you can do to actually increase its value over time. So, so don't get the idea that you should never purchase a home in a bubbly market. There's, there's times where, for lifestyle reasons, you want to buy a home. Let's say access to, to certain schools or amenities, and there just isn't the rental housing available to do that. And if your holding period is going to be a long period of time, it can make sense to, to purchase house in a bubbly market. But the bottom line is one should never buy a house expecting it to appreciate more than the rate of inflation. And if you're buying it when price to income and price to rents are above average for your particular locality, there is the potential that you will could suffer a loss. We definitely did in when we purchased that house in Idaho. We had a house built new in 2005. I, I knew we were in a housing bubble. I mean, I, I was advising others that we were in a housing bubble. But here was our mistake. We built that house for less than $100 a square foot. And, and I thought, hey, we'll, we'll be fine because it's cheaper than other areas. We held it for eight years. And just like things that get old, we sold it for about $80 a square foot. 20% loss. Houses depreciate over time. They don't keep pace 
on a, on a real basis that you don't see real appreciation. Your best hope is for them to keep pace with inflation unless you buy at a trough when price to incomes are low, price to rent are low, and, and that would be a great time to buy. Next week, we'll continue this discussion on housing. It'll be episode 44, Should You Pay Off Your Mortgage? Show notes for this week's episode, episode 43, can be found at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my insider's guide, and I'll email you those show notes weekly. That's also where I'm answering listener questions and providing other valuable content. On the Money for the Rest of Us hub, just as an update, when I launched it a couple months ago, I said there would be 100 charter members. Those charter members would help me shape the hub, get their feedback, and, I, and I've continued to get that feedback. For example, I expanded my discussion on bonds and fixed income, particularly what I'm doing with my bond portfolio and what's driving those decisions. So that's at the Money for the Rest of Us hub. Just an update to where we are in charter memberships. There's less than 25 left. When I get to 100, I will be raising the price of the hub. So if you'd like to become a charter member, you can do that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Any questions on this episode, please email me, jd at jdavidstein.com. And everything I've shared with you in this episode is for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. I've simply provided general education on money and the economy. Have a great week.